بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة المتقين ولا عجبان إلا على الظالمين والصلوات الله وسلامه على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين اللهم لا سهل إلا ما جعلته سهلا وأنت تجل الحزن إذا شئت سهلا اللهم أعنا على ذكرك وشكرك وحسن عبادتك يا رب الكريم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Radio folks so Bismillah. So, um, let me start this thing here. Right. So last week we um, we had like an introduction to the concept of the uh, intention or a niya as a as a actual uh, condition of the prayer. And we and I'm not going to go back over that again. Let's read the uh, Arabic for today. And then we'll do the translation. So, Bab Shurut Salah, the chapter of the uh, conditions of the prayer and specifically the intention. وَمِنْهَا أَنِّيَّةِ فَيَجِبُ أَنْ يَمْوِيَ عَيْنِ صَلَاةٍ مُعَيَّنَةٍ وَلَا يُشْتَرَطُ فِي الْفَرْضِ وَالْأَدَاءِ وَالْقَضَاءِ وَالنَّفْلِ وَالْإِعَادَةِ نِيَّتُهُنْ وَيَنْوِي مَعَ تَحْرِيمَ وَلَهُ تَقْدِيمُهَا عَلَيْهَا بِزَمَنٍ يَسِيرٍ فِي الْوَقْتِ I think if we even do this much, that would be a massive achievement. I think it's too much, to be honest, but let's see. So the translation is, from the conditions of the prayer, is the intention. It is obligatory to specifically intend that exact prayer. It is not a condition, however, to intend to pray an obligatory prayer, or a prayer in its time, or a prayer after its time, or a supererogatory prayer, or to repeat a prayer. One makes the intention along with the opening takbir. However, it can be done a little before that as long as the time for the prayer has entered. So that's the text, inshallah, that we're going to cover today. And subhanAllah, actually, there's a lot of knowledge in this uh, uh, few sentences. A lot of really important stuff and some surprising stuff, I think, that people are going to uh, uh, be, um, will benefit from, inshallah. But uh, just so that my mind is not too uh, lost. I want to say that alhamdulillah we've got a lot of uh, guests today mashallah from different parts and we're going visitors from London and from Scotland and you know old timers and uh, lots of the Hajj and the Umrah folks are here and we also I just want to say that from today we have to have we're making an official statement an official decision executive decision which is going to delight some people and upset other people it's going to delight the people who want to try and lose weight and it's going to upset those that are just you know, seeing this as a freeloading session yeah, no more chocolates, 
No more junk food. No more calories being added in this lesson because we're dying. Honest to God, we're dying. Not for January only. Not for January. This is our. This is a real New Year's resolution. Okay, this is a real New Year's resolution. We can't yani, be going back on this. No, no, we can't. I, 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 I don't need any other option unless you know a better way of not making the halal haram. I need to know. Yani, subhanallah, the situation has got to that level. The situation has got to that. Yani, yani, to this level that even if you people forget to bring something or refuse to bring something, they're being posted. <laughs> so I want to say Jazallah khair to uh, Uthman Aslam. Usman Aslam, Aslam was the pre- is he still the Amir of? Uh, 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 certainly, certainly has been. I, I don't. Th- I think he still is the Amir of, uh, yeah, yeah, Al Maghrib in Scotland. And uh, I don't know in what the Khushi he yani felt that he wants to send one, two, three, four, five massive trays of what they for Russia, yani. yeah, five huge trays. I don't know what we're gonna do with all that. To be honest, other than of course me take them home, but <laughs> so they need to be yani, distributed before people's minds start to uh, wonder. And by the way, I don't know type behavior in, in leaving the stuff in the car. By the way, Ajman, I, I, I don't want you thinking. Oh, yeah. No, no, hold on, hold on. I said from today onwards. No, no, okay. You know what it is? Unless of course you want to do some dealing afterwards. Yeah. From after today, okay. Listen, <laughs> I'm happy to start the lesson again just to clarify that point. Okay, so today's okay. No, no, no. Today's no, no, no. Because I, I'm I'm weak like that. No, I can't, I can't. I'm sorry. We can't have this. Everyone's free and no compulsion. Wallah, Habibi, I wish. I wish. I went once and I got. I saw the fulai, I filled my fridge up, and you know what it is? I didn't have time to drink it, and it went off. Wallah al went off. But anyway, anyway. So, from today onwards, Jazakumullah khair to every single person who's brought only and the love. But we have to stop. We have to, because my willpower is not strong enough. And I'm putting on weight like no man's business. I was doing so well, and I don't know what's happening. Okay, so from now on, end of. That's the first thing. Second thing is actually some interesting points. People who asked questions last week, ask them again today. There's one on the issue of um, voting or something, and there's something else as well. But there was an important point that we need to revisit from the end of last week's lesson. If anyone visited the portal, and you should get into the habit, by the way, um, if you see questions on the portal, I do get to them in the mid, in the in the in like you know after the lesson, right? So if you've asked your question, you go back and you'll find it answered. So actually towards the end of last week's lesson, Arif, he posted a hadith about the ibadah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the time of Haraj. And it was actually quite funny because he actually wrote it down in Arabic. Yani, uh, not the actual hadith, but he said, isn't there a hadith that something like the ibadah at the time of Haraj is something which is yani, very good and very praiseworthy? Because we were talking about the concept of Christmas time and times where kufr is increased, should we likewise increase? 
Yeah, should we as a response increase our ibadah in times where they do it? And I said to you that there's a qawl from Umar, but there's no kind of nothing from the Prophet. Do you remember that? And then uh, Arif then quoted the hadith. And for some reason, I even though it's written haraj with a ha, I read it as haraj. And haraj, of course, means difficulty. And haraj with a ha, as it was written, is actually a famous hadith where the Prophet ﷺ said at the end of time there will be lots of haraj. And the, the companion said, Ya Rasulullah, what is al-haraj? And the Prophet ﷺ said, al-qatl, al-qatl. Yani there will be lots of killing, there will be lots of you know, murder, people will be killed and they won't even know what they were killed for. Basically, the word haraj is a word for fitna. So uh, if you actually if you go replay back that, se- that session, that, that part of the lesson, it's actually quite funny because I was sitting there thinking, you know what, I've never heard of a hadith that says that the ibad at the time of haraj is uh, something thingy because I never heard of that hadith. And actually, he never also intended that hadith either. So I was, I was actually trying, I was actually saying that there is a hadith that doesn't exist, that didn't actually exist, that I, you know. Anyway, so the point is, is that everything's still the same. I just want to make that clear, that the hadith I was talking about that I said didn't exist, doesn't actually exist. And the hadith that does exist is the one that he quoted, which is that, is there a excellence to ibadah uh, at the time of fitna, haraj? Answer is yes, there is. But is that relevant to our point? As I explained to Arif in the question, no, it's not. Because what we were trying to establish is that does a hadith that says that the time of fitna, persons, people should go to, to ibadah, does that legislate therefore that one should initiate an act of worship in certain times? No, there's no connection between the two. Look on one hand what the hadith is about. The hadith is about when people are starting to kill each other, political strife, arguing and whatever. What's the, the main characteristics of those people? They're getting involved in things they shouldn't be involved with. They stop worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They get involved in politics, they get involved in nonsense, whatever. And that's the time where if more people just shut up and they just yeah, they turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there'll be a lessening of fitna, no issues and so on. Most of the time. That's, why, that's what the hadith is intending. Whereas the point that we were discussing is that is it permissible to increase our worship as a unilateral action, we decide to, on a regular basis, in response to another indicator or another initiator, i.e. kufr. And I said that as a general principle, that's okay, and from Umar, that's okay, but from the Prophet I would say there's a hadith that indicates that, no. So anyway, that's, I just want to uh, uh, clarify that. Now we're starting the chapter of niya proper and technical. We've already defined what the niya is. We've said it means yani, to be determined and to have an objective and to, and to be yani, uh, intending and focus something specific. We also gave its technical meaning, which is that which is done with the intention of getting closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is what niya is in the sharia. But now we need to understand its role with respect to the prayer itself, with respect to the prayer. We've already established, and that's, sorry, that was the question that someone asked last week. They said that, um, uh, is it true that as many people claim, that uh, the Riyadh al-Salihin prints that we find, because there's a lot of prints of the book of Riyadh al-Salihin by Imam al-Nawawi. And Imam al-Nawawi, what he did is that he gathered roughly 2,000 hadith that are focusing on the uh, kind of the akhlaq and the adab of Islam and the key areas of aqidah and whatever. It's not a fiqh collection. It's not a history collection. It's about good manners. It's about good actions. It's about bad sins. It's about yani, riba. It's about this. It's about the love of Allah. It's, a, it's, a, it's the greatest book, honestly. It is. It's, it's wonderful. However, however, there has always been a claim that Salafi publishers have always played around a little bit with translations in order to kind of 
kind of sanitized the book from some of Imam al-Nawawi's own opinions. Of course, Imam al-Nawawi was famous for being what's known as an Ash'ari in Aqidah. And uh, Ash'ari, plural of Ash'ari, uh, and I don't want to get too much into theology because, you know, that's quite detailed, but um, they have some issues which differ from Ahl-Sunnah with respect to Aqidah. And Ahl-Sunnah as a word, the people of Sunnah is a big word. Because actually the Ash'ari are also from Ahl-Sunnah if you're comparing Ahl-Sunnah to the Shia or to the X or to, you know, to deviant people. But when you're being accurate in an academic sense, and we're talking about Sunni Muslims, amongst Sunni good Muslims, there's, we can say that there are the people of the Sunnah. And the people of the Sunnah here would be those who believe in Allah exactly as per what the companions would do. And the Ash'ari have some small differences and they're the closest to uh, Ahlul Athar or Ahlul, uh, the Ahlul Salaf or the Ahlul Sunnah, whatever you want to call them, with respect to how they believe in Allah. Because of that, because of Imam al-Nawi's belief, there are, always, there are always people historically that are very careful about how they teach what Imam al-Nawi says. And there's really no need to, frankly. But, you know, that zealous kind of uh, 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 caution, to the extent that I do believe that there has been some slight editing of English translations and maybe even Arabic ones, I'm not too sure about that, but certainly in Arabic, a few pieces here and there where something is kind of sanitized. Now, obviously, that's a decision that they make, but it's not an academic honest one, is it? And we cannot defend that kind of uh, action. Something, yani Ahlul Sunnah, Ibn Taymiyyah made it. He says that whenever we call evidences, we call evidences for us and against us. That's the way of Ahlul Sunnah. We are always academically honest whether we win the argument or not. But yani, this is issue of, of deen. And academic honesty is the greatest of uh, uh, principles. And integrity is so important, actually, when it comes to knowledge. And uh, this thing that they did made a lot of people lose confidence in companies like Darus Salaam. Darus Salaam, the Saudi public, uh, pub, pub, publishing company that publishes in Pakistan, in Saudi and UK. And you know, obviously, it's very important because they publish a lot, number of great works. They've got the Noble Quran, they've got Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, they've got all the six books now in, in English, they've got Riyad Salih in Bulugh al Maram, Al Rahik al Makhtoum, the Sealed Nectar, and 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 Al al Marjan, all of the classic books, all of the modern books, and then lots of books, obviously, to do with Aqid and Tawheed, which are modern publications. So they've done a lot of good work and a few mistakes here and there. And we don't want that their whole work to be ruined. But because of that action of sanitizing things here and there, okay, what that led to then is a big attack from people who are not from the Sunnah on anything that's associated with Darus Salaam or translations and Sheikh Al Albani specifically, and 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 and. Now, I had to go through that whole introduction because it's a beneficial point for you as students of knowledge, especially when you are accessing these books. I don't want you to lose confidence in Darul Salaam, but as a Muslim, you should never have 100% confidence in anything, in anyone, even the Quran translation I'm talking about. Every, when uh, those who have studied fitna, fitna with me so far, the Tafsir Sutta Al-Imran, they know that the opening session is me teaching the people about the science of translation. And explaining a very important rule. The most important and the first rule that we study in the Tafsir of Al-Imran is that there's no such thing as translation. Every translation is a Tafsir. Every single translation is Tafsir because you cannot literally translate the Quran. You have to have an opinion on what you think the Quran is trying to say in that particular verse. And that is why you will see not just linguistic differences of style between translators, you will see material differences in meaning because of what they think the context is or what they think there's an aqidah issue, for example, and so on and so forth. So it's very important to always not be suspicious because you don't lose your mind and have what's worse every time you're reading a book, okay? 
But you need to know that the books are not all the same. Books are different issues. And this is one, one, one of the first times in this class that I can remember, maybe the only time I've brought an English book to the lesson to use as part of the class content. Okay, I'm going to use it later on. And I, 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 I felt comfortable bringing it, bringing it because this is one of the remarkable books in the English language. Okay, that I'm going to show you later when we discuss the issue of Nia. But, we, but I, I want you to know that you should always be suspicious of anything translated into English. And that suspicion is the healthy suspicion. I don't, know what, I, don't want to, I don't know what the exact word is that I want to call it. Okay? I don't want to call it cynicism. I don't want to call it caution. Maybe caution is the right word. And actually, I want to say to you, very importantly, that the practicing Muslim is cautious in every aspect of his deen. Not just where he's always been told by teachers to be cautious, like halal and haram and uh, issues of makru and... No, I mean at the fundamental points as well, like reading the Quran translation, got to be cautious. Sitting with, with me, got to be cautious. Any teacher... That's why you're always encouraged by teachers to always sit with another teacher because only when you sit with another teacher do you understand the mistakes of your first teacher because otherwise you're never going to know because when you remain at the level of student and just at one teacher then everything the teacher says is correct which is nonsense and you know you need to sit with a few different people you don't open the circle up so wide so that you start to become you know lose your mind and start to then follow people on deviant paths because people always differ but there's a level of difference that exists within a small circle, which is quite acceptable, always going to be there, inevitable. And that's okay. And through that, you learn and you, you pick up stuff and, and so on. And, and that's good and it's healthy. And I always encourage that uh, with myself, with you sitting with any other circle. You always want to hear opinions and have this kind of level of bounce back off another teacher. So this is what I heard and my understanding. That's very important for your development. Okay? And it also, not just for your academic development. I don't just mean for your ilmi development, but for your methodology. Ahl sunnah are very straightforward people. We don't, we're not cults. We're not a cultish kind of people. Uh, and the, the da'wah and the deen that I teach, I don't care whether Salafi or Hanafi or, or Ash'ari or Maturidi or Madhab, whatever. I focus on the knowledge. It's important for me the aqidah that a person's coming from because that's ultimately what matters. But the, I know that there are some space yani, in the issues of aqidah in certain areas which we are, can be flexible about. And fiqh, we can be super flexible about. And we need to be able to be honest enough to discuss any opinions and, you know, uh, uh, know our own positions. And that's very important. Right. Um, why do I bring all this up? Because the question was asked that um, some of the people, they lost confidence in Riyad al-Salihin because of one particular edit, which indicates the intention is to be verbalized. Now, I didn't mention this last week, but because that person asked the question, Naveed, I think it was, I'm going to bring the point up. Actually, classically, of course, we know this is never done by the Prophet ﷺ, never done by the companions, never done by the tabi'een, never stated by the four imams in their main books. However, there is a statement from Imam al-Shafi'i, an actual authenticated statement from al-Shafi'i that there is to be a talaffud bin-niyyah, that the niyyah is to be verbally articulated. Now, let me just say something from the beginning, that Shafi'i can say whatever he wants. Any man can say whatever they want. Then that's never going to be in evidence. But it's a pretty big thing when Imam Shafi'i says something. We should give it the, uh, the attention and respect it deserves as students of knowledge. But let's just not lose our minds here. Even if he did say that, and even if he did mean exactly what he means, no way to usalli, raka'atain, this, that, blah, 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 then it's just his opinion. And I've already answered that last week. I said, you know what? It makes sense to offer that as a solution to people who are not, not so sure, help them out. They're ishtihad and you know, I want to just mention also, I was reading what Sheikh Muhammad Mukhtar Shanqiti, Hafizahullah, was mentioning about the whole talaffud bin niyyah, articulating the niyyah. You know what struck me? While he was discussing it, and he made it very, very clear, it's not from the sunnah, he never said it was bid'ah. 
actually his language was very subhanallah very uh, it struck me it struck it struck me so clearly because he was very soft pragmatic diplomatic lean no, don't want to say lenient but yani you know in fact i quote, i i remember exactly what he said he said fahuwa yani ila hadath huwa aqrab yani he said it's not something from the sunnah but it's probably closer to being a newly invented matter you know as in the hadith kull muhdathatin bid'ah you know bid'ah is the the horror word that everyone's scared of yes innovation but actually muhdatha or muhdath means the, a newly invented matter something new hadith you know hadith in arabic means new okay and uh, uh, a new issue in the religion is a innovation which is blameworthy but it was interesting he didn't call it bid'ah he said it's closer to a newly matter new matter which is nothing not a praise in any in any sense but it's not an outright condemnation you know you are haram for saying it whatever and i could and that's fitted that fits in with it, what i've always believed and what i've always taught that this is a similar not a million miles off a minaret a mihrab a loudspeaker a microphone it's in those kind of categories of things but a bit worse okay it's like that kind of category of things where it's understandable why people introduce them to help people but actually it didn't and it was it, it turned into something quite wrong because no one would go into a mosque without a minaret and say this is not a mosque and no one would say this mosque doesn't have a mihrab therefore i'm not praying in it and no one would say that if you don't give the adhan via the you know what i'm trying to say whereas if you were to say to someone don't say anything for Nia, they'll have a heart attack and they'll melt. Yeah? You know what I'm trying to say? And that is the proof of where a problem occurs, how serious people take it. And if people do take it seriously, you know that's a newly invented matter and it is closer to that. But anyway, the point is, a chef, he said that it, it is to be articulated. Now, I want to say to you that even if he said that, we understand it and he's wrong and Allah knows best. But Muhammad Mukhtar Shanqiti said that when Shafi'i did say that, in my opinion, I quote, he meant by that the statement Allahu Akbar. So actually he did say that, but, but by that he meant takbiratul ihram. I just want you to know that and write that down in case of your later studies when you come across a statement that a Shafi'i said this, you've got two, uh, three possibilities. One, you just accept it and said, okay, that's what he said. Two, you believe that it's not accurately authenticated to him. That's a possibility by the way, because this is a riwayah from him. There are other narrations from him that says there isn't articulation for the niyyah. So it could actually be a weak narration. However, it seems to be authentic from him. And the third is, he did say that. This is what he meant. It means Allahu Akbar. Regardless, if all of the four imams said it, regardless of who says it, the class position and the position of the vast majority of scholars and the correct position is that there is no articulation of the niyyah in any single way. And when you start to think about it, you know, Sheikh Uthameen is going to make some interesting statements. He's going to go far out in a minute, okay, when it comes to the niyyah. He's going to go even further than you thought you'll see that sometimes the statements of these types, they can get mixed up. You get confused and you start to actually contradict what's in your heart. So like, for example, you might know, like we gave the example last week of Eid prayer, you know exactly what you want to pray, but you ain't got a dali how to say it. Right? So you're like, you know, I remember, I remember it clearly. Like I'd be ignoring the imam completely until he says, right, so this is what you need to say for the Eid prayer. And I'd be like all ears now, I'll be listening. Because I need to know, I need to repeat what this guy says. And I remember that when I didn't get it, I turned to my dad and I say, how's it go again, dad? Yeah. So I know what I need to pray. I need to pray two rakah. I need to do six at the beginning, six at the end. You know, that's the, 
That's three in the beginning, three in the end. That's ingrained. But I don't even know what to say. I've reached a level where I know exactly what to do, but I can't say it, and so I feel like I'm not doing the thing properly. It's like that statement they said, it works in practice, but doesn't work in theory. You know what I'm saying? Yeah? So, it's as ridiculous as that. Okay, so, what does the Sheikh say, uh, start off with? The, he starts off with the very first statement of the text. It is obligatory to... It is obligatory that one specifically intends that exact prayer. I.e., if someone wants to pray a prayer, it has to be that prayer, dhuhr. You have to specify, I want to pray dhuhr. I want to pray asr. I want to pray, not I want to pray four raka'ah at this time. I have to specify the exact prayer that I want to pray. That is the meaning of that original statement. So if he wants to pray witter, he must say, I want to pray, he must believe, I want to pray witter. Not I want to pray three raka'ah, which are sunnah, which are this, which are that. Not that I'm praying four raka'ah in the afternoon at this time. I want to pray asr, so he has to have the intention of the asr. At the top of page 292, the sheikh then opens up this discussion to the wide audience. He says, for in kanar ghayra mu'ayyana, but if the prayer is not a specific prayer, then it does not, then he does not need a specific intention. So I repeat, if it is not a specific prayer, then it doesn't need a specific intention. Give me some examples of a non-specific prayer. Go on, for example. It's exactly what you just said, but give an example. Okay. So, that's a good one. Let's start with two raka'ah for wudu. Classic difference of opinion amongst the scholars. That's bang in the middle. Okay? So, the two raka'ah before dhuhr or the two raka'ah before fajr, these are super specific nafal prayers. They are specific super rerogatory prayers. They can't be replaced. They have a specific place, a specific time, a specific reward, a specific meaning, and a specific legal status. They are super rerogatory. Not obligatory, but if you do it, you get rewarded. Yeah? These are specific. The exact opposite is, you know what? I feel like praying two rakah. And if I was just to get up right now and pray two rakah, that's a sunnah. The Prophet ﷺ used to do that. Okay? But there's no reason, no time, no restriction, no condition. Do you understand? This is what we have a phrase for this. This is very important you write it down. This is called an-nafal al-mutlaq. An-nafal al-mutlaq. Now this word is very important for you to understand. Al-mutlaq. It's going to come again and again in fiqh. Al-mutlaq means... Unrestricted. Actually, it means absolute. But I have a feeling, I don't know why I have this feeling, but I have a feeling that the current generation, if they hear the word absolute, they don't understand by that unrestricted. Is that me just being cynical about education? If I say, I know, if I say to my generation, uh, in its absolute sense, it means that. Right? I know that the people have understood what I mean. But I know if I'm speaking to someone like 2025 or something like that, when I say in its absolute sense, I'm not sure if they've understood what I mean. Does that make sense what I just said? Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Restricted. That's exactly my point. That's exactly my point. I get the feeling that the younger, I don't know why I think that there's less education, but I do. I think it's been proven. I don't know, I don't know, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, but I get the feeling that if I was to say, listen, in the absolute sense, people are probably going to read that as 
in its super restricted sense. When in English, it means the exact opposite. Did you know that? Be honest now. Okay, be honest. Let's do a little anecdotal test. All right, let's look at a numbers thing here. There's 50 people here, okay? There are 50 people here. Out of 50 people, if I say in its absolute sense, the statement, in its absolute sense, it means X. Did you understand that meaning in a very open, any possible meaning, completely unrestricted? If you understood it, that's what its meaning was, put your hands up. Oh my God. Bro, three people put their hand up after I told them the meaning. Alright, so if you understood that in to mean very restricted, extreme, absolute, put your hand up. So that's amazing. See? So my theory was right. <laughs> and I'm not wrong by the way If you think I'm wrong Just go and check it Go and look at your grammar books And whatever The word absolute Alright Although I do know That in English It's used to say Absolutely right Yeah But absolutely here Does not mean Super specifically right It means extremely I think That's how it's being used When you say absolutely right Absolutely correct I don't think the word absolute is being used to restrict. It means absolutely meanings 100%, as opposed to saying it's only this, which I can understand why you'd make the same. However, when you say in its absolute sense, you are basically meaning by that in English that there are no restrictions. In its absolute sense. Now, I'm getting a lot of quizzical looks, which is making me think, have I got this wrong? Yes? Jeeva's with me. Go on. Not qualified or diminished in any way. There you go. End of story. Not qualified or diminished in any single way. And the word unqualified, okay, is exactly what I understand when I understand uh, absolute. Okay? Not been restricted, not been qualified by a statement, by a preposition, by something, a suffix or a postfix or anything. It is in its complete, open, original sense. We say in its absolute sense. This is what the word al-mutlaq means. Al-al-itlaq. Okay, so when we say, yani al-al-itlaq, it means this. When you say al-al-itlaq, it means in its absolute sense, you're probably right. But specifically speaking, you're wrong. That is how you would use that in the English. Specific would be the opposite to absolute. And in Arabic, al-itlaq is, uh, yani something which is mutlaq is different to something which is muqayyid. Something which has been restricted and specified is different from something which is absolute. Okay, anyway. After that discussion about that, back to the point, النفل المطلق is that which is completely unrestricted and unqualified and not diminished by an intention. So the, me standing up and saying, I, the Prophet used to love praying too, uh, the Prophet said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran, وَاسْتَعِينُوا بِالصَّبْرِ وَالصَّلَاةِ Yani seek help by doing sabr, having sabr and praying. The Prophet said to Bilal, Bilal? Not Bilal, no. Which companion? Help me to help you Get to Jannah فَأَكْثِرُوا يعني بالسجود, يعني Increase in prostration Who? Who did he say that to? Subhanallah I forgot who he said that to He said help me get to Jannah He said help me help you get to Jannah By increasing huh? Increasing in prostration So the prayer generally Has been encouraged by the Prophet Even without reason So two rakah before Fajr Would be the one extreme Two rakah if I just stood up would be the other extreme. Does that make sense? This is a nafal mutlaq and this is nafal mu'ayyana. 
Now, in the middle would be wudu. In the middle, right in the middle. Some scholars said it is mutlaq. And some said that no, it is restricted because it only happens after wudu. And it happens, you know. And I have to say, my personal opinion is that it can be both. If you do not think of anything after wudu and just pray, then that's, I think it is mutlaq. If you want the specific reward of the hadith of Bilal, because the hadith of Bilal, the Prophet ﷺ said to him, you got to explain to me what you're doing. I can hear your footsteps in Jannah, what's going on? And Bilal is like, I don't do anything other than, oh, there is one thing. Every time I make wudu, I pray two rakah. No speaking, no nothing. I pray two rakah straight after. So he said, that's the one. So therefore, if a person is saying, right, I want to get the ajr of Jannah, and link those two rakah with wudu, that's a specific sunnah prayer. Do you understand now the difference between an-nafil al-mutlaq or something which is unrestricted and something which is restricted? What's the point being made? Legally speaking, you have to have an intention for a specific prayer. But for unrestricted prayers, absolute prayers, mutlaq, and from now on I'm not going to confuse anyone and use the word absolute again, I'm just going to use the Arabic one, mutlaq. For mutlaq prayers, no niyyah required. Never is a niyyah required. Unspecified, unrestricted, unqualified. Okay? Right, good. The Sheikh says, the author has also given something of benefit when he said that a person must specifically specify the name of the exact prayer, the actual prayer itself, such as dhuhr. So for example, if he was to indicate that I want to pray the fard of this current prayer time. So for example, if a person came to the masjid, he walks into the masjid and the people are praying, and he enters and he forgets whether it's dhuhr or asr, I don't even know what's happening to be honest, right? And, or he doesn't even know whether I'm praying fard or nafal. And then, so he doesn't know fard or nafal, he doesn't know whether it's dhuhr or asr, but he comes in at the time of Dhuhr at the masjid and he joins the jama'ah, then according to the author and the Hanbalis, this prayer is not valid because he did not specify that exact prayer. What has he got? He's got a prayer which he's rewarded for, but he didn't fulfill the obligation. He still has to pray Dhuhr. That's what the author will say. That's what the Hanbalis say. He did a valid prayer, he gets rewarded, he will get rewarded for doing that, but he didn't perform dhuhr because he didn't specify it by its exact name. That's the position of the Hanbalis. Are you happy with that? Sheikh Uthameen now is going to say something else. He said, Qeel. It has also been said by some scholars, and when he says Qeel, he's indicating yani, small, random, yani, minority position. He's indicating it just in the word Qeel, because otherwise he would say, or he would say, he would say confidently and say that, but the scholars have also said, or some of the scholars, when he say qil, he's almost kind of, you know, qil, you know, in, in, in Arabic is passive. You are hiding the, the person. You're hiding the person. And whenever you're hiding the person, it's almost like you don't want to attribute that to them. So you're also reducing the kind of the strength of the statement. That's why we are not, recommended to get involved in qila wa qal he said they said they said it's not tadlis technically it's just the fact that he's indicating that it's not a popular opinion some people said or it was said 
It is not a condition to specify an exact prayer. It is not. The exact opposite, basically, of what the Hanbalis are saying. It is actually sufficient for yakfi and yanwiya as-salah. It is sufficient just to, in, to in, intend the prayer. And that the prayer has already been specified once you've specified the time. You've already automatically done that. Once you've specified the time, the prayer has just followed. You don't even need to mention the, the word dhuhr. Or think of the word dhuhr or the concept of dhuhr. Once you know what time you're praying in, job done. So he goes, for example, So if a person makes wudu for salat al-dhuhr, he's at home, and he thinks to himself, right, I need to pray, got to make wudu. So he, pray, he makes wudu, and then he prays. But when he's praying, or at the time that he is about to pray, he is not actually focusing or concentrating, am I praying dhuhr or asr or maghrib or isha? His prayer is valid. Valid. Because, Shaykh Uthameen continues, if he was now asked, لو سُئِلْ ماذا تُرِيْ بِهَذِهِ الصَّلَةِ What do you intend or what do you want by this prayer that you're praying? He was saying, uh, he, he would say, I, I want dhuhr from this prayer. That's what he would say. If you were to ask him afterwards, what did you just pray? He would say, I pray dhuhr. Okay? So, his statement has been based upon the time that he's praying in. His statement has been based upon the time that he's praying it. وَهَذَا الْقَوْلُ هُوَ الَّذِي لَا يَسْعُوا أَنَّاسُ الْعَمُلُ إِلَّا بِهِ الْعَمَلَ إِلَّا بِهِ This is a very interesting big statement to be honest. Maybe a bit exaggerated. He said, and to be honest, this is the vast majority of people that they do this every single day. He is basically saying that majority of people, they don't go in thinking specifically about the exact prayer, but rather people deal with prayers in time zones. They think that dhuhr has entered. They think asr is about to come in. They don't think of the prayer, but they think of the time limit. I think that's, there's an argument that he's making there, which is valid. Right? Yani, uh, let me give you an example of that. People, when they think of... I mean, there's, there's evidences for it and against it. There's, there's you know, for that, for that statement that he's making. But I think that he's got, a, he's got the right to make that statement, that the majority of people, when they think of prayers, they're thinking of periods of time. So I've got to wake up and pray fajr. Right? And it's Fajr time, or Fajr hasn't started, or whatever. And maybe it's a semantic discussion. Maybe the, both mean the same thing, but not what he's going to say now. He goes, Because many, many people, He goes, Majority of people to make wudu when they come to the masjid, they don't really think exactly. And especially if the imam's already started and he's in ruku'a, no one thinks about anything about other than, i got to catch the ruku'a. No one's like thinking, right, dhuhr, 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 dhuhr. Forget about the niya thing. No one's really kind of being super specific. He goes, Sheikh Uthamin continues, he goes, based upon this difference of opinion, let's also add to the mix, let's also add to the mix, that if there was people that were praying a four-unit prayer, but he doesn't know whether it is dhuhr or asr or isha. Okay? And then he prays four units, those four units, with the intention that they are obligatory upon him. He doesn't know, this is a bit insane. So he, he knows that he's praying four raka'ah, but he doesn't know whether it's dhuhr or asr or isha. But he just knows that it's obligatory to pray these four at this time. 
So then according to the second opinion that it is not obligatory to specify the exact prayer, this prayer therefore is valid. According to the Hanbalis of course, completely invalid. Okay? So he goes that according to the Hanbalis, this would be invalid and according to the second opinion, it would be valid. What he should actually say is according to all the four Imams and the vast majority of scholars, this prayer would be invalid. Okay, according to the vast majority. Sheikh Uthameen then says, As for what I think is the more correct opinion, is the statement that it is not a condition to specify the, na- the exact prayer. I do not think it is a condition. Actually, it's the time which specifies the prayer. This time, it's the time period itself that people focus on more than the actual exact specific prayer. And he goes, and he goes, and therefore it is valid for a person to pray four units with the intention that these four units are obligated upon me right now. Even if he does not specify the actual name of the prayer. Falawqal. Alayya salah rubaiya lakin la adri. Ahiya dhuhr amil asr amil isha. Kulna salli arba'an biniyati ma alayka wa tabarra bidhalika dhimmatuk. He said that if a person at a prayer time X says, I need to pray four raka'ah, but I don't know whether it's dhuhr or asr or isha, but I know I need to pray four obligatory raka'ah. Ibn Uthaymeen will say to this person, pray the four, pray what's obligatory upon you and you have freed yourself. Meaning, yani, yani, uh, is a very difficult phrase to translate. Okay? In fact, no one's come up with the, the translation for this phrase. Uh, anyone want to offer? Bara Dhimma? Yani, so this is, see, this is the problem. It's all linguistic, linguistic, linguistic. What's the populist phrase that's going to knock this out of the park? Because if we go into linguistics, dhimma, right, is a word which is indicating responsibility, burden, shackles, problem, headache, whatever. Bara'a means freedom. The idea, Islamically speaking, is that yani, the bara'a of dhimma is to... Is to um, What's the word? To, to free yourself of the obligation. To do the bare minimum, basically. To do the bare minimum and just get yani, you know, over the line, effectively. To unshackle yourself. Just to get yourself, yani, get the dhimma off you. It might still be hovering. Huh? Almost tick box, yeah. And what Sheikh Uthameen is saying is that, well, you know what? If you have done... The obligation upon you, you've effectively done dhuhr without actually realizing or remembering that it was called dhuhr or whatever. Then, frankly, you're gonna be able, you're gonna be safe when it comes to judgment. Absolved, absolved, mm-hmm. correct. You absolved yourself of your your primary responsibility. All right. Now, this is a very controversial position that Sheikh Uthameen takes here. Like. From the contemporary scholars, he's also in a minority. Like Muhammad Bukhtar Shankiti rejects this. The four Imams reject this. The majority. There are scholars that accept. Sheikh Hilan, by the way, is on this opinion. Okay, 
uh, I, I think I haven't asked him recently But from all that I've known From 20 years ago He was always upon this opinion Very relaxed when it comes to this issue And I have to say That to me it makes sense To me it makes sense And I will make this the class position But I will make you aware of it That it is a minority position You should be aware of it And the safer one is just to add The extra thought that is dhuhr But here is the, our winning point Our winning point is Is that you yourself When you add that thought That this is dhuhr You're not doing nothing extra actually it's neither here nor there. If you're thinking that suddenly you adding the word dhuhr to your internal thought changes anything, it doesn't at all. Actually, Sheikh Uthameen is right. The vast majority of people, they know that I've got to just pray. Now the prayer time's coming. They start preparing for it in advance, which is why you're going to see another big difference coming now as well. Okay? Uh, it will start to make sense. Yeah? Acquit, free oneself from a responsibility. Yep. That hadith, by the way, was said to Rabi'a ibn Ka'b al-Aslami. Zakallah always. Well done. Excellent. It's on the, it's on the notes. Narrated in Sahih Muslim. Zakallah Ahsan. Yeah. The, the timeline thing, the majority of your life is busy at work. You know, those are vented. Yep. You make a mental note. Yep. They're not going to pray there and then. Oh, that's coming up. That's exactly what you just said. That's coming up. Yes. What if you don't know what time it is? What if you don't know what time it is? That's... Okay. Right. Okay. If you were to jump up and start praying, the first question is to ask, why would he do that? that that's not the common sense thing to do. That's not what you do, is it? You wake up, you think, right, I've got to go work or go home, or why am I even sleeping here? You know, <laughs> there's a, that's <laughs> obviously answered that. After he's answered the obvious questions, then he makes a rational intentional decision to do something and that's why i bought this book here okay because i want to prove a big point today i want to prove that the basis that everyone is making all these judgments are which is the hadith of has not been understood correctly yep yep Yep. So I will say to you right now that in the example that you just gave, he's in the in between period between Dhuhr and Asr. He wakes up, he's disorientated, he does not even sure is it Dhuhr or Asr I'm praying. But, but he prays two sets. That's big difference between missing one out and praying two sets or not knowing what it is. The main thing is, is that if he was to think that I, I don't know what time it is, but I haven't prayed the prayer for dhuhr time. You see what I'm saying? He's going to pray it. It's going to, for, it's going to be counting as the dhuhr time prayer, even if it's an asr. It's going to work out like that. Whatever this person does, if he intends to actually pray for a period or for something that he's missed or for something that he might have forgotten, it will still by default fall into the category of dhuhr prayer. That's what Uthameen is saying. I personally think that this is more a semantic difference than an actual one. It is unlikely that it's going to happen. But I do think, and this is a really good point what you said, it's unlikely it's going to happen, which normally would mean that we shouldn't take it too seriously. However, I actually think it is unlikely it's going to happen, but it does have a very serious ramification. I think it will change the way people are so stressed about their niyyah because of exactly what Zafar just said. How is it that people think about a prayer and then what happens in between? What is enough to consider to be an intention for the prayer? 
Let's read. Let's, let's see what he says. Okay. So he goes, therefore, to continue this then uh, uh, to his uh, conclusion. So therefore, if a person says, Ana alayya salat min yawmin, a person, if they were to have to pray five prayers in the day and they did not indicate to themselves the name of any of them, but he, they prayed two, four, four, three, and uh, four, it would be accepted according to the second opinion. Whereas according to the Hanbalis, these would not be a valid prayers. You have to indicate the exact name, the exact reality, the exact specific prayer. And that is the Hanbali position. Indeed, it's the majority. So he goes, okay, then there's an issue, there's an issue that arises. Mas'ala. يقول بعض الناس some people will say that, to be honest, the niyyah is, a, is, a, is difficult. It, it makes things difficult. And Sheikh Uthameen makes a really nice point. He goes, no, actually the response is actually that intention is very, very easy. It's sahla. Actually, to leave the intention, that's the really difficult thing. To actually remove intention from an action. Think about that. Yes. Correct. That's the proof right there. You tell a person who is in the verbal intention game that don't make the intention right now. As I said, he's going to go into meltdown. He will, he will literally go into OCD kind of shaking and, you know, rocking and hold his knees and all the rest of it. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be breakdown. He will not be able to continue. It's much more difficult. Now, now you will say, okay, that's because they, they started a bit that so they're having a problem. Okay, so let's take someone upon Sunnah who doesn't say a statement as well. Imagine trying to pray dhuhr without thinking that it's dhuhr. And that is why we are going to discuss this, this issue about what does the hadith actually mean. Everyone quotes it, everyone states it, everyone thinks they know what they mean. Actually, as Zarabozo stated before, as I always thought it was, and actually as he does in a way which is unsurpassed in Arabic or in English, he proves that actually... Because many scholars, they translate this different. Every action is by intention. All actions are only based upon their intention. All actions are only based upon good intention. Everyone who translated it from all of the scholars, they either took it literally, or the majority, what did they do? They did something which in Arabic is called taqdir, which they assume that there's a word which is missing that you've got to assume in there to make the sentence make sense. Because they read it and they said, that doesn't make sense. What does it mean? All actions are by intention. All right. And they said that, therefore, it must mean that all actions which are good are by good intention. And every action which is bad, then it is bad because of that intention. And they will come up with their own theories. And actually, after a huge discussion, and this is the book, if you've not bought it, you must have it. Every English speaker should have it. Even every Arabic speaker should have this book, okay? It is the 40 Hadith Commentary by Jamaluddin Azarabazal. It's a masterpiece, this book, okay? The best book ever written in the English language, without exception, okay? It's also probably the only scholarly piece of work as well. As I said, better than majority of original works, and, and uh, it's a book which holds its own. And when I was looking at this statement by, by uh, Ibn Uthaymeen, I remember reading this 10, 15 years ago, this particular one, 
and him bringing out and when I found it I also found my notes in it here as well uh, that that uh, that proved the same thing and I just want to just read out and like I said he he discusses just this issue over 20 pages just so you recognize the detail that he goes into okay but this is after he says after going through this opinion and quoting Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Qayyim and Ibn Rajab and this and the Hanafis and the Shafis and he go, this is what's good about him he goes it seems and this is his conclusion and Allah knows best that one must stick as closely as possible to the literal meaning of any statement of the Quran and Sunnah unless there is overriding evidence to do otherwise. This is a brilliant statement, by the way. Okay. In this case, the way that could be done is to understand the word a'mal, deeds, in this hadith, to be in reference to every conscious, intentional act that a person performs. Everything, anything and everything. Thus, the only acts that are excluded are those that are done in a completely involuntary sense or by coercion. So if something just goes like that, like your body, you had no control over it, it did it, or someone lifts your arm, yani, then it is done by coercion. These are the only two extend, uh, accept, ex accepted. He goes, in that case, therefore, if we understand it like this, there is no need for any additional taqdeer, any assumption of missing words, etc. Every voluntary act is accompanied by an intention as is clear by the definition given for intention. Therefore, the correct translation for this phrase, and Allah knows best, is that every conscious act has an intention behind it as its driving force that brought it about. I repeat, and for me this is 100% correct. Every conscious act has an intention behind it as its driving force that brought it about. The intention could be praiseworthy or blameworthy, and this is supported by Ibn Rajab in his commentary on this hadith. Now I'll tell you why, and I repeat again just so you understand what he's trying to say. Every conscious act has an intention behind it as its driving force that brought it about. This is difficult, which is why even if I repeat another five times, you're probably not even picking it up. But what is he basically saying? He goes, if you do something, there was an intention there. Whether you actually realize it or not, whether you think about it or not, but there was a driving force and that is the intention. And the reason that we can understand this hadith like that and not have to worry about giving it meanings of praiseworthy or blameworthy and you've got to have good intention, you've got to be... The reason you don't need to worry about that is because the second half deals with that. It takes the headache away. The next part says, and every man shall have that which they intended. So if they did intend bad, they get bad. If they did intend good, they good. But don't touch this first part. Leave it as it is. So therefore, what's the meaning of this hadith? It's a factual statement. It's not a encouragement or it's not trying to warn you. It's just saying, Every action that you do is driven by an intention. Now, if that, and that's a remarkable piece of work and a remarkable conclusion. If that is the correct conclusion, and that therefore is the correct translation, what's the benefit for us right now? Think about all those times you're in a bathroom, making ghusl, and you're trying to think, what am I doing here? When you know the only reason you went to that bathroom was to make ghusl for Jum'ah, ghusl for X, because you've, uh, you know, you've played tennis, you've played football, you're sweaty, whatever. You know very well the reason why you're going to that bathroom. In fact, when you were sweating, you were saying to yourself, man, I need a shower. You know what I'm saying? And that's how normal human beings work. 
Don't now make me have to keep thinking, I need a shower, I need a shower, I stink, I stink, I stink, I stink, I stink, and up the stairs, I stink, I stink, and when I walk into the bathroom, I stink, I stink, when I'm there in the water, okay, okay, I'm doing a shower because I stink, and for nothing else, but only because I stink. You get what I'm trying to say? I've seen people who go into meltdown over Jum'ah like that. Because they go in and they're like, oh, this is for Jum'ah, this is for Jum'ah, this is for Jum'ah, this is for Jum'ah. Bro, chill. You get what I'm trying to say? Likewise, Salah. People kill themselves over it. They, they left their home at Dhuhr time. There is no reason at any, uh, for anything else but Dhuhr to be prayed at that time. There's nothing else you're leaving home for. You're going to the masjid. And then when they get to the masjid, they start panicking, trying to get in their minds that I'm praying Dhuhr. I'm praying Dhuhr. I'm not praying Asr. I'm not praying Asr. I'm praying Dhuhr. That's the people who don't even say the verbal intention, by the way. I'm talking about the people who are not even saying, whatever, whatever it is. So, this hadith actually brings some raha. It brings the any some, some comfort. And it makes a lot of sense. It fits with the sharia. It's meaning sense. The application is sense. And therefore, let me just uh, uh, read out the final uh, statement and then we can uh, close and take questions. So therefore, he says, um, he goes, He goes, for the person who comes to the masjid and and yaqif fi-saf wa yukabbir, he stands in the prayer, he stands in the line, and he gets himself ready to say, Allah Akbar. That's his niyyah for the prayer. Hatta, he goes, Hatta, some of the scholars said, and there's a quote, لَوْ كَلَّفَنَ اللَّهُ عَمَلًا بِلَا نِيَّةً مِنْ تَكْلِيفٍ مَا لَا He said, and the best translation I can offer is, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had burdened us with an action without an intention, he would have burdened us with something that we cannot possibly do. He goes, I quote again, some of the scholars said, لَوْ كَلَّفَنَ اللَّهُ عَمَلًا بِلَا لَكَانَ مِنْ تَقْلِيفٍ مَا لَا If Allah had burdened us with an action without intention, he would have burdened us with something that we just couldn't possibly do. It would have been impossible for us to do. The niya actually is what comes naturally. We don't need the artificial injection and we certainly don't want to remove it. Does that make sense? Niya is an intentional, natural, basic yani, reality. Falawqeel. If someone was to say pray but don't intend the prayer, Sheikh says, make wudu but don't intend wudu. It's impossible to do it. It's impossible to do it. When you are telling someone to pray, he knows, well, okay, I'm going to pray. And this is the reason I'm going to pray. To remove all of that in the act is much more difficult than just saying, you know. So he goes, and then he mentions something nice. He goes, and this is the reason why Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, he said, and he quotes him, that, that the intention, it follows knowledge. It follows al-ilm. فَمَنْ عَلِمَ مَا أَرَادَ فِعْلَهُ فَقَدْ إِذًا لَا يُمْكِنْ فِعْلُهُ بِلَا in the intention follows knowledge. So the one who knows what action they want to do, they have automatically intended it. You see now the connection between what Ibn Taymiyyah said and the hadith? All actions are just driven by a conscious intention, whether you realize it or not. If you know what you need to do, you have intended to do it. You've intended to do it. It's not actually even possible to do that action without intention. He spoke the truth. May Allah have mercy upon him. rahimahullah. And this is what is indicated by the statement of the Prophet ﷺ, i.e. There is no action possible except by intention. 
Wallah, I want to say to you that you may think that this was a random and basic yani, point and lesson. I want to say to you this is an azim benefit, a huge benefit. If you understand this, you've understood so much. It brings so much raha. And I don't just mean for you guys, because obviously you guys practicing, understand, whatever. But you need to spread this knowledge. You need to get people to have more... You know what it is? For me, it's a waswasa and confidence thing. When I see a lot of people asking questions, I notice that the majority of people have been... And this is a general thing, we know that. But people are always knocking other people. And people are always making people doubt their own actions, doubt their ability, doubt their sincerity, doubt their focus. Doubt. And that's got to stop because it, 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 it inculcates waswasa. And people don't have confidence that what they're doing. And when, as I said, they're doing it perfect, in the right time, right place, right way, and we're telling them no, it's wrong. Just like the stupidity of saying that something works in practice, but no, we've got to stop that because it doesn't work in theory. I mean, as ridiculous as that statement is, it's as ridiculous that people are doing things, but we're saying to them, no, but you didn't intend it properly. You got, no, chill. If you get up at a certain time, okay, which is different to something else normally, because like, you know, a person, for example, he's going to go to the masjid. But then he says, oh, I've got to go make wudu. Yani this, you know, getting from his desk a bit earlier or, or driving a bit faster or changing X or Y are all actions which are indicating a bigger action which indicating a big action this is automatic and the intention is there and people need to relax on that that's basically the import of the point being made okay folks so let's open up to questions and discussion yes you don't have to specify the name, the name or the exact reality of the prayer you don't need to say to yourself uh, uh, I need to pray the Zuhr prayer Frankly, I think it's semantic, that statement. Um, for example, again, somebody didn't know, didn't know the name of the prayer. Yeah. Yes, that would be the easiest example of how correct this position is. What you just said is the easiest example of why this is clearly a correct position. Person doesn't know the name of the prayer, but I just need to pray something now. And I've been told it's two. So I'm going to pray too. That's Bara'u Zimma. That's he's done what he's meant to do. Who cares whether he knows it is called Fajr and that it's Sunnah to recite in Fajr this Raka'ah and this unit and whatever. All I know is that there are five prayers in the day and there are five yani, at certain times and that's all I know. And I pray them at there each time. Uthameen is saying that is accepted and that is our class position. Aisha who's asking. Correct. It is not needed to specify the exact nature of the obligatory prayer. Rather, what you need to specify is you're praying it in its right time. That's all. That's all. Let's not lose the plot entirely. Let's not say Zuhr is valid in Maghrib time because he just stands up and he says, I'll just pray whatever you know, comes to my mind right now. Let's not lose the thing completely. So, yeah. Yes. 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 What about how it works when it's do with combining the salah. Uh-huh. For example, yep. so he, he, his argument would be, and I'm assuming, okay, the same. That it's not the two prayers you're combining, but you're combining the prayer. And actually his argument would be stronger in that sense because he would be wanting to combine the prayer at the earlier time because the time does not suit his traveling or his ex-reality, the time. It's not even the, the prayer per se. It's the fact that the time is, not, I'm not going to find time in the time. So he goes, the prayer of that time, 
I'm going to bring forward. So it's like a semantic thing, to be honest. Uh, Second one, you know, Rasulullah uh, you mentioned the hadith about those two people who went to kill each other. Yes. For the intention. Yes. And he saw something said like, you know, both are in the hellfire. Al-Qatil wal maktul Yes. So I think that the one you mentioned about the intention led by, you know, everything what you do, there's always the intention. Because he will be in the hellfire because of his intention, because he came to kill him. Yes. But he never, I, I don't know, if it was verbalized. No, he didn't. Him. He didn't verbalize it at all. So that is it like they entered into the fight. Or? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think many... I think it's very difficult to disprove this point that an intention, and, and it's coming in, in, the, in the next lesson, this concept of al-istishab al-asl. Yani, what accompanies life? What accompanies the status quo? Istishab means to seek companionship from something. And in its legal sense, meaning that when you make the intention, when you set out from home, when you've brought that intention onto yourself, I'm going out for dhuhr, and then you go and do all kinds of stuff that have nothing to do with dhuhr. So you go and eat, then you go and play, then you go work, and then, and then in the end you pray dhuhr. As you're going to see next week, some are going to say that's completely invalid dhuhr. Right? Because they have to re-make tajdeedun niyyah. They need to like, get back in some kind of zone and say, right, what's happening now? Right, I need to pray dhuhr. Now, I'm going to tell you that's one of the, the actions of the muhsineen to always be aware of what's going on. But we're not talking about ihsan, we're talking about fiqh. This is a fiqh class. The same, yani, you know, the same, the bells and whistles, they were talking about legalities. We're here to help people, not to, you know. So the point is, is that if a person didn't do that, would their prayer be valid? Shaykh Uthameen is going to say, absolutely valid. His argument is going to be, what made me lose my knee in the first place? What broke istishab al-asl? I left the house with the niyyah. What made it go? I don't have to keep it with me every single second thinking, thinking, you know what I'm trying to say? I can go and live my life until I pray Zahar. And when I pray Zahar, I don't need to re-bring it back because it was always with me. So, that, so, so my point is, is that this is going to be the natural consequence and conclusion of the point that he just made that every action is already intended by once you've said that I'm going to do the action doesn't need this continuous kind of whatever so when you say make an intention if somebody were to ask a question saying how do you make an intention do you just say like you're making the mind when no I will say that know what action it is you want to do and the intention is made that's exactly what the statement that's, of. that's exactly Ibn Taymiyyah's statement he said فَمَنْ عَلِمَ مَا أَرَادَ فِعْلَهُ فَقَدْ نَوَى Whoever learns that which they need, they want to do, whoever understands what they want to do, they've intended it. So once you've learned what you want to do, it's done. Ibrahim. And this is what we said last week. Ibrahim, what we're saying is that where did this theory come from? This idea of articulating the intention. And the argument was put that it was to help kids understand what they're saying. And what we said is that that could be an argument, but there's a counter-argument against it as well. That actually telling the kids this maybe confuse them even more. And maybe just telling them that this is that, that well, it's dhuhr time, you should pray because of it's dhuhr. Go outside, look at the, at the time. What, what, do time what, what, what do you think is the time now? How dark is it? Where's the sun? What time is it? Or whether you want to do it by watch or not. Make them understand the actual reality of the prayer as opposed to, right, it's now the prayer because I say, you know, no way to also leave, you know, blah, blah, blah. So the argument goes back and forth. Yes. Here. Um, is this from the point of view, meaning 
you have this concept where you know you're in a spin circle or whatever and you know it's an incursion so is it yeah, I, I, so that's a really good question. Ajib is saying that, okay, so istihdarun niyyah, this is called, to renew the intention, whatever people we are encouraged to do that. Uh, first of all, I want to say that the people who do that are close to establishing bid'ah, by the way. All right, we understand, you know, and we love them for their kind of, you know, their motivation and the whole kind of, you know, thing that, okay, guys, before we start, we just should, you know, just, you know, renew our intentions. I, I, yeah, and it's become so kind of well known that you see that at the beginning of every kind of study class and whatever. I want to say that in this form, this is not the Sunnah, but it's one of those difficult gray, gray areas because there's a great meaning behind it. Because the idea is is that the theory that the guy is working on is that probably, actually, to be honest, he's more justified saying that in the classes that we have than other things because. When it comes to, for example, the Maghrib class, it actually makes a little bit of sense. This is why we won't come out and condemn this action. Because when people say this in front of me, because I'm there about to study a teacher class, start, and the Amir says, okay guys, if we just take one minute for everyone just to just focus and renew their intention. My heart feels, you know, pain. <laughs> but I do grip my teeth. Because there is, it doesn't, it stinks basically. It's not the, yeah, little... Cheeky stab. It's not sunnah. But we can't condemn it outright, outright, because actually there is a real point there. And what is that point? All right? And this is where if Sheikh Uthameen was be, were to be here, he'd, be, he'd argue this amazingly, right? But this guy, he would say that the truth is that in a Maghrib class, you've got two, three hundred people. Maybe 50 came out super focused that this is a subject that I need to learn for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The other 50 came out because they liked the speaker. The other 50 came out because they were forced to come. Other 50 came out because they know that if their parents see that every one month if they go out to an Islamic event, they've ticked that box. Another 50 came out because they heard something that they're going to, you know, there is possibly a chance that they're going to get munch afterwards. Yeah? These are all good, valid reasons. And I tell you now, as someone, as you know better than I do, and you know, and people in the game know, people are like that. There are very, and the hadith actually, you know, which is similar to this, is the guy who came and he stood at the back and he sat down and he was passing by and, you know, he was not fully in, but he's not fully out and whatever. And, you know, Allah says he's forgiven as well. So my point is, is that guy, that emir, when he says, okay, guys, you probably came for this reason, but I just want to, for your benefit, if you now say I'm here for the sake of Allah, whatever, then you're going to make this whole act, this whole three hours, this whole class, a pure act of worship. It's going to be rewarded from beginning to end. So I want to help you. And, you know, that's a nice thing to say because then a person says, but what if I put to you that, you know, the same reason that he came has not changed just because my man said, you know, take a few seconds to renew your intention. He's still upon, well, you know, that's very nice of you, thank you very much, but I know I'm still here only for the bunch afterwards, right? Now, I reckon if Uthameen was here, he'd say nothing wrong with the intention that he thinks that he came for. And I would argue the same. I would say there's nothing wrong with him thinking that I'm going to go for a munch afterwards. But you know why? Because you can easily go for a munch without coming to sit through his three-hour torture right here. You know, if you say, what if he absolutely can't because next man's paying for him as well? Yeah? <laughs> or you can't even get out of the house? 
and it is confirmed that that's not happening except for that reason? <laughs> you know what? The aqal says what? He shouldn't get the full intention. The rahmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you what? That's the, that, that's the crazy part of it, isn't it? Because that guy who was driving past, he had no intention, subhanAllah. He had no intention. And for whatever reason, he stopped. I mean, we still don't know in the hadith whether he stopped that he might have thought that there's some kind of guy who's making a political speech. Maybe a guy's giving out free things. Because that's what we do normally, right? I mean, I'm a pack, I'll tell you straight. Yani the pack attitude when you're walking down the street and you see people gathering is that something's happening good here. Sah? You will gather around, either someone's dying, and that's entertaining. Yeah? Or, I'm just saying as it is, bro. All right? Or someone's handing out freebies and you don't want to miss out. If you're on Umrah and Hajj, we know that game. Sah? If you, if you are doing Umrah or Hajj, and you see a crowd, 99% of the time someone's giving out free apple, free banana, free juice, free... You go up to it. Yeah. And you wait and look around. You, you see, work out what's going on. Once you clock the situation, you make a decision. Now I've got enough. Oh, no, I'll have that. Sometimes they're giving out ice cream. Yeah. You're not going to say no to ice cream. Or I'll bake. Man's giving out I'll bake in the middle of the Yani thingy. You're going to... Or Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> <laughs> or Krispy Kreme donuts, indeed. Yeah. So I don't, what, what I want to say is that there's no way that we can logically ever condemn a person because intention renewing is an act of worship. To remind yourself that I'm doing something for the sake of Allah, that I want to, that's beautiful. But we're talking about legal minimums. We're talking about what should be the asl. Yeah, and we're talking about people who have a problem as opposed to people who have mastered it. Remember, and I'll, 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 this is very important, that the, the Sahaba, Hatta Tabi'een, the scholars, the Salaf, they used to say the difference between us and them. So they would refer to themselves as, yani the Tabi'een would refer to themselves as lesser than the companions, was their mastering of the intention. That was their, that's their well-known statement. The difference between us and them. So the difference between top scholar and top, top scholar is only their intention. Because we pray all night, they pray all night. We study the Qur'an all day, they study the Qur'an all day. We are masters of knowledge, they are masters of... So the only difference is, is that he's making his sleep worship, he's making his eating worship, he's making his walking worship, because everything that he does, he's mastering an intention, changing, uh, changing. His, and that can only happen by a master who's constantly thinking about intention. And what does that mean? Constantly thinking about Allah. How can I please Allah now? How can I please Allah now? And that's very different to the guy who's having doubts about am I praying dhuhr or not, or am I praying asr? So, tajdeedun niya as a concept, renewing intention is, the, is, a, is a mastery. It's a skill that every Muslim should focus on to make their worship yani, work for them. Nothing to do with doubt and problems and so on. Okay? Um, right. Yeah. So, uh, one of the benefits from the, uh, this, uh, his translation is that, we, that you don't have to have the intention throughout the whole action. We're going to come to that. Okay? It's a different section. Yes, Muhammad. At the same time. Or I hear something. Oh, right. So you're praying. Right. I mean, they might be praying and actually doing something else. Yep. I think prayer is still 
or something. Whereas mm. if I'm going out to eat something with my friends and there's a class in the meantime, yep. I need to have the So let me just make it clear, woman. No one can justify this, the, the, the statement or belief that they are being rewarded the same. There's no way you can compare the guy who comes at the beginning sitting there and he's bored out of his brain and he's waiting and the guy who just pops in and at the end, little cheeky and salam dua and you know, take all the reward. We say, alhamdulillah, he gets reward. But it's not like this one. Like the Prophet said that the one who comes for Jumu'ah first, he gets the camel. The one who comes at the end, miskin gets a little egg. One who comes when, when I come, he gets absolutely nothing but besti, okay? Right? Like the one who, the Prophet said, the one who prays in hadith of uh, Mustad Imam Ahmed, we were having a debate, subhanAllah, about this, uh, 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 this exact hadith just two weeks ago in Mecca. Myself, Sheikh Kihlan, Sheikh Walid, Yasir Qadi, Sahatim in a car, big debate about this hadith, okay? The hadith in Musnad, and it is authentic, the Prophet said that when a person stands up to pray, they will differ in the amount of reward they will take. Some will take a tenth, some will take an eighth, some will take a sixth. A fifth, a quarter, a third, some will take a half. And it's interesting that the word half was mentioned almost as the maximum. There's some opinions about that. But so there's no doubt that there are differences. But there's some reward that's going to be achieved. But the difference is going to remain in terms of, you know, smacking out the park. Let's take a few online. Um, bring it down a bit. Uh, uh, right. Okay. Uh, praying Sunnah at night. A person doesn't have to pray two or three or four. He can carry on praying as per the hadith of Prophet Yeah, I think the night prayer is also another one which is on the fence. Could be in the restricted and could be in the absolute unrestricted. Yeah, I think so. Is it correct to say tawbah and istikhara can be made after a non-specific nafal? Aisha asks, and that's a good question and correct because it, yeah, I think that's good. Because the Prophet he said a person should pray to rakah and then say, Pray to raka'ah, he should pray to raka'ah. The hadith that yani, indicates that would indicate that it is being done only for the istikhara. Okay? And not, you can't pray the two sunnah of fajr and say, right, I'm going to just make this dua. That's like the cheap way of doing istikhara and it's not, not right because he was doing those two raka'ah anyway. So his argument is, her argument is, is that this is an absolute prayer. The reverse argument, of course, is that it's actually the most restricted of prayers. You are not going to pray those two raka'ah at all, unless you're going to make istikhara for dua, and that's the reason why you did it. So that's another one which is on the fence. <coughs> we learned that you can't change an obligatory intention. We're going to come to that later. Okay. Um, uh, in Zarabozo's Sharh, he mentioned a section about the khilaf of making mandub actions rewardable by the changing of one's intention. What do you hold to be stronger? That's exactly what I just mentioned, Rayhan. I hope that that satisfied that. Okay. Uh, I believe absolutely that a person, uh, the opinion, or the theory that a person can make permissible actions rewarded by by their the, the power of their uh, uh, intention. Off the topic, your thoughts on girls going to public secondary schools and having to take part in PE whilst wearing clothes that might show the shape of the body, music, etc., etc. So that's a big thing. But I mean, in principle, of course, the aura is of different yani, levels, as we covered in a section on aura. So I don't think you're asking the technical question. If you're asking just my political question, I want to say that it is not possible to healthily maintain either the health of our women from uh, get, keeping them out of these activities um, of physical uh, uh, education, especially the younger girls who are not going to get an opportunity to go out and do it themselves from the Muslim culture uh, outside of school. And so therefore, actually, we need to utilize those physical activity sessions during school. 
So that's the first approach that we have to do it and then take the, 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 you know, the warts and everything that come with it, such as the music and such as the whatever. There are certain things which are flexible and some things which are not flexible. So, for example, if they say you have to wear a T-shirt, I'm afraid, well, sorry, we can't. We have to cover our arms. If we have to wear shorts, sorry, we have to wear full uh, leggings. And then that's the next question she's asking. He's asking. He's saying that is it acceptable to wear leggings in a thing? I think amongst a, a, a group of girls doing exercises together, I think that's okay. According to uh, if you're in front of men and the girl is balig, that's not right. It's not right to show as we cover as we as we saw the statement of Aisha radiallahu anha that the clothes should never show the bone structure. Bone structure, let alone yani, all the skin and everything, whatever. So they should always, and that's the concept of jilbab. You see, jilbab is, according to some scholars, is big abaya, right? In actual fact, according to my opinion, it's not at all. The jilbab is anything that is an over dress, over coat, over, over cloak, over whatever. It's adding that second layer to what's already there. And that second layer is not attached to the skin, specifying bone and skin structure as such. So it still leaves the, the body of the woman in an unspecified mutlaq sense. You love this word mutlaq now. I'm telling you to use it every day now. Just to freak you all out. Okay? Absolute sense. Uh, in regards to the hadith... Uh, one second. Uh, can you just pray the fard raka'ah or the sunnah prayer also essential? If they are, which ones do we have to pray daily? We're going to come to that in this right time. But it is absolutely essential to pray the sunnah. It is obligatory... To pray the Sunnah prayers in principle. And individual prayers you are not punished for leaving out. Okay? So as a whole, one must not abandon the Sunnah prayers. But individually, if you miss out an individual for reasons, then that's something which is acceptable. Permissible. Yani. Um... When you are praying behind the Imam, and recently they've been praying Dhuhr and Asr right after and, uh, and, and right after one another due to the weather. Me standing in the women's section, I don't know what near to make since we have already prayed Dhuhr prayer. I'm thinking that Imam is repeating the Dhuhr prayer while he did the Asr. So what should be my intention in this scenario? First of all, why would the Imam repeat the Dhuhr prayer? Why would they think about that? So anyway, you do need to intend Asr. I'm afraid you do need to, you know... If you pray an asr, if they, because they're probably, they're probably uh, from Canada and stuff, because obviously with the amount of cold and snow and everything that's happening there, the imam can make that decision. That's the whole point. That's the whole reason why it is allowed to combine in heavy rain and bad weather, because we don't want them to come out again for another prayer, because coming out is dangerous. So the imam there and then makes the decision. That's why you don't, you know, a lot of people think as soon as it rains, I can combine prayers at home. What kind of nonsense is that? Right? It's for the people who attend the Jama'ah. The Imam turns around and says, Right guys, we're going we're gonna to pray Isha now. We're going to pray Asr now. And it always happens like that. It's always Jama'ah Taqdeem, the earlier time. And you allow that person to do it. And the Imam has, and that's why an Imam is called an Imam, is a leader. What kind of leader is that person who just says, Allah Akbar, doesn't tell anyone? You should turn around and tell the people, Right guys, here's the score. It's bad, you know, anything outside, okay? So if you can tell everyone, WhatsApp everyone that, you know, don't bother coming for Asr, we prayed it already, pray at home. Us, let's pray Asr. Yalla, give the iqam. That's what he's got to do. Now, obviously, maybe he did do that and, you know, standard, you know, she's praying in a boiler room with no speakers and no whatever, standard woman's section. So you don't, you don't blame her. Because you, you tell me, man, women are all praying in boiler rooms and whatever. That's even if they've got a boiler room to pray in. Yeah, 
Astaghfirullah. See, Usman is saying you should be grateful because of extra heating in there. That's the problem, you see that? Tawbah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you do need to have the intention for thingy. Right, a couple of uh, thingy. If you follow the Salafi school of thought, does a divorced female require her wali's permission to get married? A friend asked. <laughs> My goodness. Right. Forget about the Fali Salafis. Can often do a Salaf. You see, this is a classic example of a problem on behalf of the friend, not on behalf of our friend here, but the friend. Okay. Following the Salafi school of thought has nothing to do with a legal opinion in fiqh. The question of whether the divorced woman has now experienced enough to be able to make her own decision who to marry, that's what the chapter is called in fiqh, has nothing to do with your aqidah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it is purely whether you believe. And according to those scholars or that they would think, then no, they do not require a wali, the one who is divorced at a certain age. But yani, always there should be, in principle. Uh, last three questions. Uh, my husband's family is Catholic. Can we attend his grandmother's funeral? in the church and the crematorium and the wake so uh yes it is permissible to attend the funeral and that w uh, uh, but let's be very clear what we mean by the funeral we mean those aspects of the entire burial service that do not have a religious or ritualistic connotation so so therefore that means you can go to the gathering you can go to meet the people who are there and offer your condolences you can enter into the church if that's where they are. But once they start you know, singing their hymns and making their prayers, you need to exit. You should not be in an area where there is a religious act of worship you know, involved. This is the position of virtually every scholar in history. And likewise, the, the cremation is an impermissible act. And it is not permissible to witness that act. Okay, And the wake itself, if I remember correctly, the wake is just that weird gathering beforehand, right? After, After sorry. The wake is fine. Unless you it's some African style wake, because the African wakes, you know, no, you. I wish that it was them jumping up and down. Uh, some African wakes, they get the 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 dead person, and they make him up and they sit him in the chair. Yeah, yeah. Huh? Might be some Spanish as well. I seen the African version, bro. It's rough, especially in Ghana. Yeah, you know, if you ever watch a series, it's called The Morning of Life. Okay. By, by, by the Don, the King, President Carl Pilkington, yeah? <laughs> it is the craziest and funniest series ever. And he goes around and, you know, he'll show you some crazy behavior. By the way, the Sufis made it onto that one, by the way. He does go around and find, I think, Turkey maybe? Dancing, yeah, they were in a dancing. Was it Turkey? Uh, or Cyprus, maybe. I can't remember where he, but he found, and we got benumbed as well. But in fairness... <laughs> we got on TV <laughs> But in fairness Compared to those African boys And compared to I think some of the South Americans Who they hang their dead From the wall They don't bury them Not the wall But mountains So And unbelievable How they get the body up there By the way We're talking cliff Thingy And they will take the body And they will wrap it With a rope And they just hang them And they leave it for permanent Until it's picked And decayed And whatever and there's others where it's crushed, and there's others where it's this, and there's others where it's, it's a madness, bro. But there's no doubt about the most madness with those Africans. They, they smashed madness to a whole different level. They get the person, and they pump them up, inject them full of, because obviously, you know, a body becomes, pump them up, sit them there. And I'm telling you, no exaggeration, bro, okay? Makeup is easy, but they will prop the eyes open. 
and they'll put the music on. The whole idea is that we're celebrating their death like as if they were in life. So we're not actually seeing them go away, but they're living with us. So the wake, the post party, is pure celebration. Everyone's laughing, joking, drinking. Hey, how are you doing? They keep speaking to the one. They sit down next to her, take photos. Madness! Maybe even come back alive, yani, in that just because of the, the, the love in the room, yeah? MashaAllah, tabarakallah. So, these are the parts that are haram to witness. Obviously, normal wake, not a problem. It's just a kind of condolencing. So, the wake is permissible, the ex is permissible, all of that. And um, I, I, I just some advice, uh, Mazita, so some advice for your husband that you can give. And I've gone to a couple of these and I do that. I want to say to you that, you know, a lot of people, they, they feel the pressure to go because they're people who are close or they're friends and they think that if they're not there, then they're going to be insulted. Okay. I want to say to you that the deceased and the, fam the family of the deceased do not get insulted by you not being inside of the prayer. Get that out of your head. What they are insulted is for you to not have come and to not have given condolences and to not show concern. I'm telling you now, get there early and meet them outside like they do when they greet people. They're not watching where you go and whatever, whatnot. And afterwards, when people are all getting off, you hang around and be there outside waiting for them and then be there by their side and speak to them and help them and whatever. That's what they'll remember. And they'll remember the support afterwards. They won't care that you weren't there for the prayer or standing right next to the burial point or whatever. And if they see you at the graveyard and you're walking around just looking at the graves, which is what you would do. So at the burial itself, because the Prophet ﷺ told Ali, uh, Ibn Abi Talib and when he asked shall I wash my father he said no but go and bury him right uh, Abu Talib uh, who died as non-Muslim as we know so the burial itself is fine if they're going to start making you know the, what you see you know when they make a prayer or whatever you'd walk off and walk around yani, the graves and take a, a lesson for yourself people aren't watching you know why are you not standing right next to me you know in sunglasses and hat and you know whatever you know they saw that you came and then afterwards when the prayer is finished, then people are going to go up individually and you're going to go up individually as well. So I want everyone to remember that when it comes to your own etiquette of how we don't want to be there with the azab of Allah because the shirk that gets involved in the irreligious things, we don't want to be anything to do with it. And the rest of it is a human action that is a thingy. No personal questions, only here. And uh, what to do about missed fard fasts and upcoming Ramadan if now diagnosed as anorexia and on supervised eating treatment lasting a year. I don't know about that, but if a doctor, trustworthy doctor who understands the situation, believes that you are not allowed to, if you can't fast because you are uh, uh, ill, then you do not need to fast and you can pay persons uh, uh, for each one. Anyone here? Yes. So, um, what if a humanist funeral? Yeah, I, th I think if it's a, a humanist no where there's no prayer, whatever, and it's unspecific in what's going on, then I think that's okay. It's when they're trying to bring something you know, pseudo-religious or pseudo-regular, that's, that's going to be a problem. That's why I said religious or ritualistic. Okay, yes. Yes, you mentioned about the Isihara from the question online. Yeah. Uh, is it conditioned to do the Rakaan? Or is it just a religious sunnah? Uh, yeah, it's sunnah, yeah, it's sunnah. It's not, uh, not, not an obligation. But some scholars did say that you do need to have the two sunnah. But yeah, it's a difference of opinion. Yeah. Yeah. To go to the house that where it's there, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's nothing which you know they've done that. I mean, you know. I'm just trying to think of an example. It's like almost like the example of you going to the shop 
to buy a bottle of alcohol because you make that person look more like an adult and versus you going to that person's home where they've got the alcohol in the kitchen and you going to visit them they're not the same so attending the cremation and witnessing versus going to a home where a person has had something haram done to them no, no comparison and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best do not run away folks by the way just in case people online this is ridiculous by the way. what is happening here Usman Khair, Usman we appreciate that Oof. That's, a that's one by the way and there's five Allah Mustaan okay next uh, week inshallah surprise next week mashallah oh my goodness all right we just only we just try just to freak people out at home okay all right huh oh sorry that's what's wrong next week guys uh online sorry not next week um january 28th inshallah um don't forget to see us with Maryam in Manchester if you're close 26th sorry the Friday Saturday and Sunday if you're close then make sure you come to Sheikh Yahya's class and he's also going to be doing some stuff in London and in Manchester so keep an eye on that on his Facebook page and Qabil Baraka any other announcements any other things next week nice surprise said that already okay guys